Ken Albala is a scholar, writer, media personality, and historic and quirky cook. Listen to him talk about it all today on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Ken Albala. He is the professor of history and he is the cultural ambassador for Aspectopia at the University of the Pacific. He has written over two dozen books and co-authored others. He's made many media appearances, and he's a good social media maven, posting wonderful imaginative dishes that he creates. Welcome, Ken. Thank you for having me. So it's kind of fun to have you here today because there are lots of questions I want to ask you, and this is a perfect forum for me to ask those questions. First, I want to ask you how you got involved in food and food history. Well, I think I'm unusual in that I got to it through academia. Usually people who end up in food history professionally are in some other field and then wander into food or really have their love is in food, but they were told you can't do a dissertation on that. I mean, think of Dara Goldstein, people like that. Um, I'm unusual or even Jacques Pepin, you know, went to Columbia and said, I want to do a a degree in French food history. And they said, man, no, c'est impossible. But I was actually at Columbia a little bit later, I think, and no one argued about it. I just said, food, I want to write about food. I wrote about dietary theory, actually, in the Renaissance, and they were fine. And I think the reason is partly because Carolyn Bynum was there, and she wrote a book on the meaning of food to medieval women. And so it was kind of legitimized in that department before anywhere else in the United States, or the world for that matter. Um, This was in... Uh, the late 80s. And I mm-hmm. said, I want to write about food. And my advisor said, okay, fine, go ahead. <laughs> Which well, is- so that's really interesting to me because I'm before you and my interest was also food when I went to school. And the only thing you could study, literally, the only thing you could study was um, home economics. Right, right. I and I just said, no, I don't think that's what I want. And so I went on to get go to law school because what else can you do? You know, when you don't know what you want to do, go to law school. (laughs) You know, and even, I mean, obviously I got this job as a food historian, but I was really hired to teach Renaissance history and Western Civ and all the, all the, you know, classic history courses. And very slowly I introduced a food history course and a course on alcohol and the course. And then all the people who hired me, they were hired about the time I was born. So they started retiring and I said, okay, I'm making this a general ed course. And it's an enormous course now, you know, I get 60, 70 people in my history of food course, but it was sort of like the, the rest of the world kind of caught up to me, I guess. (laughs) Yes. I can imagine that. Yes. Plus I also think your course is probably very interesting. So that reputation gets around too. (laughs) I I hope so. (laughs) Okay, so I want to know 
there's that laundry list of books that you've written and all that sort of thing. Did you, are you obviously are more prolific than you need to be as a professor in order to get tenure and all of that sort of thing. So you must actually love writing books. I do. It's completely addictive. If I don't have a project in the works or something to actively write every day, I usually write, I mean, when I'm in full gear, I write one or 2000 words a day. Now I'm, I'm writing something leisurely, so it's maybe a couple of thousand words every week because I'm really, really testing recipes, which takes a lot more time than I thought. But yeah, it's addictive. It's like, like any habit. You know, it's, it has its good parts and it has its bad. <laughs> you have to do it. And I have to sometimes stop and just say, okay, live your life. You don't need to write all the time. So what was your dissertation topic? Dissertation became my first book, which was Eating Right in the Renaissance. And it was based on what people thought was good to eat from about 1450 to 1650. And it was just by chance that I picked that topic. My, my advisor actually said, uh, this is Gene Rice, who said, go across the, I was at Columbia. He said, go across the park to the New York Academy of Medicine when I was looking for a topic. And I said, why? I have no interest in medicine. And he said, they have really comfortable chairs. I was like, okay. <laughs> and he was absolutely correct. He said, there's, there's no one there. They're nice people. It's a beautiful, comfortable building. And the rare book room, they'll be nice to you. And I walked in, opened up a filing cabinet that was a collection of books by this Margaret Barclay Wilson, who was this nurse in the early 20th century who bought all these books, gave them to the New York Academy, and they were all there. No one had ever read them. So, so I had about 100 books of that period all in one place in half a dozen languages, but still, I just sat down and read them all. Was it? Oh, my goodness. That was quite serendipitous. <laughs> yeah, oh, and wow. it was a great topic. And, you know, I, I think maybe being the expert on Renaissance humoral physiology is a dubious distinction. <laughs> but, it's, but, you know, this is, this is 30 years ago or so that I right. did that. And right. I still get questions about it. And people still, you know, want to know. So, well, so do you think it formed a really good foundation to go from the Renaissance to the modern time where you could keep exploring and knew this, this historical reference? It did. It, it definitely taught me the way to do research um, using primary sources and how to interpret them and put them in context. And, and, you know, even though I don't work with that kind of material anymore, I work more with cookbooks and hands-on cooking of historical recipes. I think the basic training was there from the from the very start, you know, and, and has become a great habit. And of course, I try to give that to my students too now. Right. Well, so how, how would you say food has changed? And how can we make historical recipes and feel that we get at, at least a, a, an inkling of what they must have really been like? Because yeah. their recipes are not that precise. This is a really difficult perennial question, which I've been trying to answer my whole career, <laughs> is that you can't be completely and utterly authentic, not only because the ingredients are different, our cooking so heat sources are different, the materials we're using are different, the chicken is not the same animal, the carrot is not the same as it was in the Renaissance, of course. I think our palates are different also. We eat different food now, we taste things differently than they would have in the past. And our cultural preferences in food are totally different. You know, sprinkling sugar on a chicken, you tell everyone that and they go, what, that can't be good. It is actually really good. <laughs> but, but, you know, we have all these cultural hurdles to get over about what is good and what's, what's gonna be possible. Now, having said that, I think you can get pretty close. You know, if you try to use similar equipment, try to use open flame, try to get an animal that's, that's at least 
somewhat, you know, chicken is a chicken. It's not going to be completely different. Pork is much leaner, but, you know, I think that you can get pretty close in a way that like, if you're working with a score of music, you're not going to be exactly Mozart playing, you know, conducting his no. same group. The instruments are different. The, our, our, our understanding of music is different, but of course you can still perform it. And that doesn't mean messing with it. I think once mm -hmm. you adapt a recipe and change the ingredients or change the, you know, you're losing a lot. I think you're, you're losing everything. You're really not understanding about the past. You're understanding about your own preferences. And that becomes as a historical exercise pointless, I think. But do you feel that you have to have a lot of historical understanding to interpret the recipe properly since it's not the kind of precise recipe that we might have today? It, it really depends on the cookbook. There are some that are very, that are really just kind of memory aids. Like Teyavant is, is notoriously difficult because he doesn't say, it's a list of ingredients. Cook this, do that until it's done. And it doesn't tell you anything. He assumes you already know how to cook. Some cookbooks are not like that at all. Scappi, for example, in Italy, 1570, is tells you everything as if you've never cooked before. Gives you precise you know, not measurements the way we use them necessarily, but but really teaches you how to cook in a way that, you know, um, I don't know, you read Julia Child, you'll learn how to cook the dish and then you don't need the recipe. I think that's what an ideal recipe is, is that it enables you to cook without it. If a recipe is so precise and so exacting and so measured that you need it, <laughs> you're never going to be able to cook the recipe without it. It's like, like a GPS device, isn't it? I mean, it's like if you're driving and you always use your GPS device to tell you how to get to another point, if there's a roadblock or the, you know, or the GPS device goes out, you're lost. You have no idea where you are, how to get there. But if you never, if you look at a map once and you say, okay, I know where this is in relationship to me, I'll go that way. Then you know how to do it. And a recipe is the same way. You know, recipe is if I have a chicken, I'm just going to buy a chicken. Then I'll figure out how to cook it. I don't need a recipe. If I, I cut it up or I'll fry it, I'll put it in the oven. If I use you know, a tablespoon of pepper, <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, this is, there's a very big difference between a recipe that is so, and I understand why cookbooks do this. Obviously they want to sell a cookbook and copyright the idea and be unique, but most cooking, 95%, is really just get good ingredients, put them in the oven or in a frying pan, cook them, you know. Right, um, right. So another thing that I wanted to kind of pick your brain about and ask you is how have you gone from the written word, which you do so well and so much, um, and added some of the other kinds of media that you've done? It's, well, I guess I started life as an actor. That's all I really wanted to do when I was growing up. And I did, you know, three or four plays every year, musicals, and I directed a children's theater for a while. And I think when I went to college, my parents said, this is a lovely hobby. You may not do it as a profession. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And I believe them. And I think they're, their advice was right. I don't think they understood that that academia is actually a lot harder <laughs> than, than to get into than acting, but at least it's a very, once you get tenure, it's a stable profession. It's not easy, but not easy to get there. But I think that the things I learned on the stage helped me in the classroom. I think everyone who teaches should take an acting class. Absolutely no doubt about that. 
And I think also it means I really love being in front of the camera. I, I think, you know, stuff that writing is one thing and it's a very private, you know, doing the research you do alone as if you're a historian, the writing is just by yourself. And, and I, I like that. There's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that, but I think I'm built for performance. <laughs> and, and if you get me in front of a camera, I'm happy, very, very happy to do it. I did a couple I did a couple of series for the great courses, my, my food history courses there. I just did last summer something called Cooking Through Across the Ages, which is in my kitchen, filmed in my kitchen, historic recipes from Apicius all the way to Jacques Pepin. And, um, and I also did a history of bourbon for them. But anyway, I like, I like being in front of a camera. Very recently, there was a show called Eating History on the History Channel. Yeah. And they called me up and they said, we want your advice and help on this thing. And I said, okay, I can find lots of historical recipes. This will be fun. That's not what they wanted. The, the theme of the show was actually eating old food, like eating old boxes of crackers, old cans of food. Oh and I thought, this is such a bad idea. Someone's going to get sick and die. And they eventually, I prevailed upon them to add a couple of historic recipes. So this is what they picked. One of, I'll give you one example. Okay, they okay. wanted me to do a moose nose jello, um, jellied moose nose. Uh -huh. And I said, okay, that, <laughs> we got- Hogshead cheese? Maybe. Uh, no, no this, is, this is just a nose. So we got a whole moose head from a friend of mine in Saskatchewan and cut off the nose and <laughs> making my nose itch just thinking about it. And we boiled it and made it, reduced it into a gelatin. And it's, it's on TV. You can watch this in my backyard. You know, they came to my house and filmed it. So, so that was a ball. It was absolutely so much fun. Um, the year before that, just random things like this happened to me. I don't know why. Someone found out that I was making katsuobushi, which is a Japanese dried fish that you shave into flakes and then you make dashi stock out of that. It's used in all Japanese cooking. Someone saw that I was doing this. I must have posted it on my blog or something. And they said, can we come and watch you do this katsuobushi? Can we film it at your house? And I was like, well, yeah, all right, why not? It's, and it's a long process. You take a slab of, um, of tuna and you uh, uh, smoke it and then you dry it and it takes a long time. And they, they were um, happy, sorry, my went off there they were happy to come and do and they did it and it was like okay done this is this will be fun i don't know what you're going to do with it but fine and so about two weeks later i'm sitting right where i am now in my office someone knocks on the door comes in and says guess what the show that you were on you won <laughs> like, what do you mean i won I, I, this, I didn't know this was a contest and they said yes it was a contest and we're bringing you to japan to learn how to make katsuobushi the proper way with a master <laughs> And, it, oh, and we're leaving cool. in two weeks. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> and they brought me to Japan. And it, it's a whole entire hour long film about me learning how to do katsuobushi the real way. And I still know this master. We, he doesn't speak any English. I don't speak Japanese. <laughs> we were Facebook friends and write to each other. And I really did learn how to do it. It's, it was just like an incredible experience you could not have made up in a million oh, years. That's wonderful. What a fabulous experience. Oh. oh, that's great. So do you, like when you prepared one of the, the great courses, um, the first one that you did with them, which was a sort of many episodes without actually cooking very much. I, I think you had some things that you showed, but um, yeah. Well, the, the reason I really wanted to cook at it, but it turned out to be 
almost the same as the course I teach here, except half as long. So that's a half an hour show. My lectures are an hour and 20 minutes. So it's much more detailed. We talk about the, the texts and do other things in class, but they didn't have a kitchen in the studio. So, so I couldn't cook. And so it's just little, little things crushing a wall, you know, of acorns or doing something like that. So I proposed to them, why don't you come and film in my kitchen and I'll do one and a show entirely about cooking. And they said, we've never done that before. <laughs> we don't know how to do that. And they said, okay, we'll, we'll give it a shot. And so a whole crew came, stayed at my house for, uh, I think it was 10 days, stayed, stayed in town, yeah. but, but um, set up, there were cameras all across the whole kitchen. Maybe um, there was one director, two cameramen, one gopher, one, um, two sound people. There was just like this whole group of people in my house for a couple of weeks. And it was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my whole life, physically difficult, yeah. because I did um, three recipes a day. And then you have to clean up in between. And the cleaning up between shots was half the labor. Yeah. And just the timing. I think when I started, we kept stopping and starting and this takes time. And so I'm going to wait 20 minutes for this to cook. I'll start something else. So the editing of the beginning at the beginning was must have been hellish. By the end of the whole thing, I was like, you turn the camera on, I'm going to cook all three dishes all the way through, or at least one dish and, and start another one, let it cook over there, do another one, as you really would when you're really right. cooking. Right. I just didn't understand. But that takes real in incredible focus and concentration. And what made it pleasant, what made it easier is that if I was usually focused on one cookbook. So let's say we're talking about Elena Malakovets, who's a 19th century Russian cookbook. Uh, in the time that something is simmering or baking, I could be talking about her. Right. So, so it means that I had to like really be on top of the material. How much preparation did you have to do mentally? I'm not talking about mm. going out and buying ingredients or whatever. Yeah. Well, I, it was you a written script. Your own prep? Yes, I did everything. It took me about six months to write the whole script, which was, mm -hmm. I think, 24 episodes, something like that, of really, really serious research. Um, and then they had a teleprompter. So, so I was That's helpful. reading yeah. it sort of, you know, while I'm cutting and while I'm cooking, which is, which is not easy to do at all. That's, that's a trick. Right, right. Well, at least you didn't have to be totally extemporaneous with every with every take. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. It really, I wouldn't have said half the things I wanted to, and it wouldn't have been entertaining. I think if I were humming and hawing, and you know, this was this was a lot more fun. Um, and I would say, if anyone wants to buy something really fun for. Um, if you're going to be in front of a camera, a teleprompter is a great thing. It's wonderful. You just have to have someone running it and timing it for the pace of your speaking. You can't yeah. just turn it on and go because then you will have to, you will be paced in blah, 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 blah. And of course you, you don't speak that way. <laughs> you know, right. you have cadences in your speech. You slow down and speed up and you get excited and then you slow down. It's so someone has to be there following you. It's kind of like turning pages for someone playing music. Exactly you to, right. You have exactly. to do it in sync with them. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Huh. So tell me what you are you are working on now and what you know what are we about to see that you've been working on? Sure. Well, I've always have got several pots in the fire, so to speak. <laughs> so my last big project was about gelatin. Um, and that came about I don't know how it came. It was so weird. Someone dared me to to join a group called Show Me Your Aspects on Facebook. And I thought, no, I'm not doing that. It's It just sounds so silly and stupid. 
And then they dared me again. And I went on and I started making jello. <laughs> and I don't know how it happened. And I didn't look back. And I spent about a year. The people there are lovely and they're wonderful people. There's about 42,000 people on that group. And they adored what I was doing immediately. So I would, you could get 1500 likes on a post or something, you know? I mean, it's un unbelievable. They're, they're, they're an incredibly tight fan group. And I, it pushed me to the, to extraordinary lengths to do the most absurd, bizarre things that, with Jello that you could possibly imagine. And it was a ball. And then I wrote a book on it. It just led naturally to that. Um, the University of Illinois Press has it right now. They're actually peer reviewing it, which I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, someone's going to read this and go, what the hell is this? <laughs> it's, it's mostly, I mean, it's, a, it's partly history. Half of it is about, you know, the history of gelatin, which is not told anywhere in any form reliably. So that was fun as a historian. And the other half is about the future of Jello, which I'm trying to initiate a Jello revival. Because I love that. I mean, I, I didn't like aspic when I was jello when I was growing up, actually. <laughs> and then I ended up eating it every day, basically, and making a jello for a year. And as quickly as I got hooked on it, and did in your August, family I, eat it? No, and no one else, no one in my family would go near it. And the minute I turned in the manuscript, I'm like, okay, I don't want to do this <laughs> anymore. I'm not eating jello. And the last one that I did, just to give you a sense of where all this came from, yeah. is I took strips of cured meat like pastrami that I made, like I cured it myself. I cut it into long, thin, narrow pieces. I wove it together and then I set it in jello to put two strings on the end. And so it's a COVID mask. <laughs> and I said, I'm done. <laughs> That's it. I said my statement that that image will close the book and everyone will understand that I just, I burned out. <laughs> on jello um so so th that that's project i don't know when that book will come be in print um probably by the end of the year but i started immediately on a book about breakfast just because i love actually cooking in the morning uh -huh. and i've been doing obviously i've been doing it my whole life and i eat sort of unusual breakfasts there are things that i like that you know making a pizza for breakfast or you know fresh you know tacos or something like that so i thought why don't i just record this and write it down and make it a proper cookbook with real measurements and with cooking, like in proper book, modern cookbook format, which, which is a really a challenge for me because I, I have been always cooking handful of this. And even if it's something like a cake, I don't really like cake much anyway, but, but if it's something that requires exact measurements, I don't do it. <laughs> so it never comes out the same way twice, but I, it's okay with me. Um, but now for this, I'm measuring everything and I am finding that in a way that I would sort of intuitively say, if let's say I make a pizza dough, I just throw some dough in the bowl, add water until it feels yeast, you know, water until it feels right. Now I'm saying, oh, it must be three cups. Although the measurement is dictating what I do in the recipe, not what I would do intuitively, uh, yeah. you know? So, or, or if, you know, if I would say a sprinkle of salt, I'm saying now a teaspoon, maybe it wasn't a teaspoon, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dictating, the, the, the measures themselves are dictating what I'm doing in the recipe which is, I think, bad. I don't think that's a good thing in the end. But but a publisher will not look at something if it's not in modern it's not measured, format. Right, yeah, yes. not in a million years. And so it's, it's fun. It's, it's turning out to be fun. Things that I've been cooking without measuring all my life, pancakes, for example, are... <laughs> they're great fun to make well so do you did you always cook for the family every morning kind of thing? no no it's just me this is this is my meal for me everyone wakes at a different time when my kids were little i made them breakfast and i still my younger son 
is at home with us since the pandemic. So he will often ask me to make pancakes or something or waffles. We just bought a new waffle iron. It's so beautiful. It's a real cast iron one that goes on the stove. Oh. And I hate the electric ones. The electric ones, you know, they spills out the side. It lights up randomly, goes on and off, heats and then stops. So I said, let me just get one of these that goes on the stovetop. It works a hundred times better than the others. So, so I've been doing that for him lately, but I usually like to throw something weird into the mix. So like if you make a waffle, put a little batter and then put ground meat on top and then more waffle batter, it becomes like a hamburger. It's great, even for breakfast or sausage in the middle or something like that. Um, last night I was trying to make uh, uh, chung fun, which is a, a Chinese sort of noodle. It actually means pig intestine noodle, but it's but that's what it looks like. And you put shrimp inside and you roll it up and then pour on soy sauce and it's cut. It's delicious, it's a wonderful recipe. And this is the first time ever that I tried it once, thought I knew what I was doing, didn't work. Tried it again, didn't work. After eight tries, I said, okay, forget it. I'm not doing this, I give up. And I happened to ask a friend, um, Cecilia Leong Salobert, who, who said, oh, you can do this in the microwave. <laughs> give me a recipe. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and it worked. And it was so easy to do. And I just had ingredients slightly wrong and uh -huh. um, the timing slightly off and things like that. And so anyway, last night I had these beautiful noodle. Uh, it's just a big, big uh, triangle, uh, not big, a square of, of uh, noodle dough. I put some crab in it and some green mango I thought would go nicely with the crab, mm -hmm. just to, you know, something sour to offset it, rolled them up. And I looked at it for a while and I thought, this looks like manicotti. <laughs> they put tomato sauce on top and sprinkled some parsley. It's going in the book. It's so, it was so good. Like this crab and tomato go very nicely together, right, you know? Yeah. And so, so it was kind of, and imagine that with noodles and it was just it's like, yeah, the yeah. so most recipes I don't test that much. I don't have to, if I know what I'm doing, I'll do it once and or twice until it's absolutely right. And I'm doing all the photography myself, which is also a lot of fun. So all the styling and photography, I'm, I'm using my phone, believe it or not. The phone takes better images, I think, than, the, than my good camera. And do you it have all the light, the lights and filters? Yeah, well, I have, I have a few lights. I have a little overhead fluorescent. I have a spotlight and it just, it's, it's easier and, and it takes better pictures. I can crop them in a way that, you know, just becomes really hard if you've got right. a camera and have to send it to your computer and do something else. It just yeah. it works on a phone. Yeah. So, um, so what was I talking about? <laughs> I've lost the thread. So, so it's about the book and, and, yeah. measuring and just all of that. Yeah. So, so, you know, uh, basically I'll cook it. And when I think it, it tastes good and looks good, I'll take a picture, write up the recipe and then do a little taste test. So mo most of the stuff has gone on Facebook, but to my surprise, people love the taste tests. I don't, I have no idea why it's literally just me going, mm, you know, and no words, but it's got this ASMR, you know, this sort of sound thing that makes uh -huh. people buzzy. People say, mm -hmm. listening to me crunch <laughs> or, or, you know, do, I don't know why people like it. So my, my neighbor said, you should give this a, a hashtag. And he suggested, or we came up together basically with the serious, seriously sound bite. You know, it's yeah. a double entendre sort of. Mm -hmm. So that's that's my my latest hashtag of these little little um 10 second blur blurbs of me eating <laughs> testing the recipe. Um and once in a while it, it's not good and I don't use that, you know, but I often post it on Facebook anyway because it's funny. Ah, I like that. All right. So I know you told me that your your sort of dream project is always the one you're working on right now. But is there one that's still cooking in your brain? 
Yeah, I have to say, um, and this is an embarrassment, I'll admit publicly, <laughs> is about 20 something years ago, I wrote a little paper on aphrodisiacs in the Renaissance. Uh -huh. And I was talking to Alan Davidson about it, you know, the founder of mm -hmm. Oxford Symposium and everything. And he insisted that I had to write a book about it because there was nothing good ever written on the topic, nothing serious and a lot of nonsense. And he kept nudging me about this every time I met him. He says, how's the aphrodisiacs coming? And it was like, okay. And so about two years ago, I finally succumbed and got a contract to write it. And I started doing research on a sabbatical. I have a whole bookshelf actually back there filled with books on it, almost all of which is complete nonsense. Wow. It is the most difficult project. And I don't know whether it can ever be written. I, it's under contract. It's, it's now a, over a year, two years late now with reaction. And they've quietly let me just, you know, sit on it. Yeah. Sit on it. That's, that's what I'm doing. A history of aphrodisiacs. If I could write it just about the Renaissance era, I could write, I could do it tomorrow. It'd be easy. And that has been a project. I've been working on fasting for years and never really did a, a book on it. I thought it'd be a nice trilogy since I've done the dieting and I've done fine dining in the Renaissance. I thought a very serious book on fasting mm -hmm. would be good. And I may do that eventually someday, but I got, sidelined into writing about Af aphrodisiacs a part of that you know part of that story of fasting well, do you think that you could have a whole bunch of the the aphrodisiac book devoted to debunking some of the literature that's there yes it would have to be yeah totally um and a lot of the material I was working on in fasting would go into that because interestingly, very rarely do people say, take this because it'll help you in bed or make you horny or whatever. Usually it's it's religious people saying, don't eat this because you will sin. And um, so they're a lot more explicit about the foods that are bad for you um, or, or are, <laughs> you know, if you read it opposite, that are good for you. So so weirdly, the, the material on fasting has been very, very useful um, in the aphrodisiac stuff and i've written a, a little a few things here and there on both topics but i want to like big serious book out of this and uh -huh. that's so that's my dream project in waiting well how close are you to finishing your breakfast book oh gosh i'm about 40 something thousand words into it i don't want it to be a really long book i'm thinking maybe 20 60. more yeah yeah something like that yeah that's i mean that's maybe 200 pages Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's that's plenty. And <laughs> yeah. how many recipes will it be? Uh, you know, I haven't counted them yet, but I've got over 100 already. And, mm -hmm. and they tend to be short because I'm writing very, very short headers that just explain why this is so much fun. And then I'm usually giving a few different variations on it. So like adding a different ingredient or twisting it around in some other way. Um, well, what was I doing just recently? Uh, I was working on bagels this week, actually. And bagels, you know, I've, I've never thought my bagels were that good finally it's so easy <laughs> just you don't you don't I, I at least I don't think it takes two days it takes two hours um I don't think you need barley syrup I don't think you need baking soda in the water you certainly don't need New York water for it and the bagels are, are good but I'm but but then I'll make a couple of different variations of what to put on it because the recipes are short there's going to be a lot of them in there and I want someone to be able to open the book and just say, "What I want something new for breakfast. I'm so tired of scrambled eggs mm -hmm. that they'll open it up and say, oh, here's a taco I hadn't thought about. Um, and I, I'd like to make the criterion that it can be done in less than a half an hour. Because that's usually about how much time, that's the most I really want to spend in the morning cooking. Right. I mean, it's morning and you probably have yeah. other things to get to. So No, not really. <laughs> I, I mean, I have to get to school. And I, you know, what's kind of weird is people, people say, 
where do you find the time to cook? How do you do this? And I, I found the key to at least my happiness is that if I spend about four hours a day cooking <laughs> and eating, you know, those things together, if I spend about four hours teaching, you know, and that's, that's about right. You know, if I, if I have a full schedule of three classes, four hours about, is about right. Um, if I spend four hours a day walking, I'm, a, I'm an addictive walker. Um, I was walking, I walked all, I set out this morning at 8 a.m. and we started at 10. So that was two hours in the morning just to get to work. And I usually do that every day. Um, that's like a perfect balance of a day. Then you have then four, eight, 12 hours. And then uh, the writing and teaching is sort of together. And if I, yeah. if I don't, and if I spend another four hours writing, that's 16 hours. And then I sleep <laughs> eight hours. <laughs> it's 24, right? <laughs> so, you know, obviously it never works out exactly like that. Sometimes I'll be writing more. Sometimes I'll be walking less or whatever, but it's, but I think it's good to like, just get in a routine so someone was actually asking me this morning about walking, how I do that. And I said, you don't think about it. You put on a good podcast, you listen. I have been listening to your this podcast um, while I'm walking and that's why it never gets boring. This morning I was listening to the Spilled Milk podcast, which I love, it's so silly, but I got a shout out, which, which like, so there I am doing hitch kicks down the street in Stockton. <laughs> it was a, a very odd question about why they called pies coffins in the middle ages which they did like coffin coffer and and shakespeare makes fun makes a joke on this because the pie that served at gertrude's wedding um in hamlet mm -hmm. was left over from the funeral so this funeral bake meats it's in a coffin and shakespeare makes fun of makes a joke out of that because mm -hmm. it's the same word it doesn't make any sense to us now because we don't use a coffin for a pie right. form. So, so anyway, he asked, said, I probably know the answer to this. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> I've written about it. Um, so that, so, so, you know, listening to podcasts, so once in a while I'll listen to a whole novel, which takes a week, you know, mm -hmm. while walking. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really great fun talking to you. It has been, I love talking to you <laughs> and I hope we can do this in person in soon. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.